You want to put that first slide up, Dustin? Alrighty, continuing our study here through Second uh, Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians is a pretty straightforward book. It's only three chapters, and I told you last week the goal is to actually do it in three weeks, which is kind of surprising for us. So we're on track. So chapter one deals with what is the day of the Lord. Chapter two deals with what are the details of the day of the Lord. Now, if you weren't with us last week, a really quick review. The day of the Lord is the beginning of the end, if you will. And the reason it's just referred to as the day of the Lord, because it's that big of a day in history. And we mentioned last week how you just say certain dates in history and you know exactly what we're talking about. If we just say September 11th, that rings a bell with you, you know exactly what we're dealing with. But with the day of the Lord, that is such an important event in history because this is the day that Christ starts cleansing the earth, judging the earth, if you will, ultimately setting up in his ultimate return. So go ahead and go to the next slide here. We shared these verse with you last week a little bit because the day of the Lord is a big event because it's when judgment comes. Thousands of years of sin has gone on notice here. You know, a lot of times if you think about it, think about your personal spiritual life. You mess up. What happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. That's the age of grace that we live in. Aren't you thankful that when you and I sin, that there's this element of grace where God says, I'm giving you time to repent and confess and come to me in peace? Well, what happens is this world is living under sin and bondage now for 6,000 years that has built up. And at the day of the Lord, it's the time where the Lord comes down and judges the earth. And you look at these passages here. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This is a time of judgment on the earth. It's a time where God is coming back. We talked about how uh, last week in Revelation 5, how the Bible refers to this scroll. And a lot of people believe this scroll refers to a title deed of the earth, if you will. Christ is coming back on the day of the Lord to reclaim the earth as his own. The Bible refers to Satan as the god of this world right now. So if people ever come up to you and say, well, how does a god of love allow this to happen? God is not in charge of what's going on right now. Now, don't take that the wrong way, that God's not all-powerful. I don't mean it that way. But when we allowed sin to come into the world through our own sin and disobedience, God has said, you have chosen to live a life under sin, and when you live a, choose to live a life under sin, there's ramifications for that. So God has almost stepped back, if you will, and said, fine, you wanted the enemy to be in charge? You chose that back in the garden. We choose that in our day-to-day -day sinful lives. God says this is the result of allowing the enemy to be in charge. He's the God of this world, the Bible says. But during the day of the Lord is when the Lord comes back and puts his foot down and says enough is enough. And he says, I'm going to clean house, and I'm ready to reclaim the earth as mine. He's all-powerful. He can do it whenever he wants. But he's choosing to wait. And as we talked about last week, the longer God waits, the more grace is there for people to be saved before the day of the Lord comes. Because once this day of the Lord happens... It's going to be horrible on this planet. It really is. Judgment will come. And so therefore, the longer he waits is the more opportunity for people to get saved before that great day comes. So with that being said, that was chapter 1. Let's get now into chapter 2. Can you go to the next slide here real quick? First thing you see to happen here in chapter 2, we're going to go ahead and pick it up in verse 3 of uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who is now restrained will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed revealed, 
whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all powers, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the first thing you see here, but this day of the Lord, it comes back to verse 3, is the falling away must come first. Well, what's the falling away? Well, other passages give us more detail. You can look there in 1 Timothy 4.1. In the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. You know, we, we have a term that we like to use a lot, and it's kind of a watered-down term. We talk about false teaching. Well, false teaching really is allowing the enemy through the doctrines of demons and deceiving spirits to get in, and, and that's exactly what it is. Yes, it's false, but the Bible comes out and says it's really the doctrine of demons. Now, that's a pretty strong word, and we don't hear that too often. That's the truth. And as you see here in the latter times, is not false teaching just rampant? My goodness, it's all over the place. And so God says that's a sign of the end times, is this truth being twisted. Well, in 2 Timothy 3, you can turn there if you want, verses 1 through 7. It says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Listen to the description of the last days. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Is that not a description of the age we're living in right now, especially that last part, having a form of godliness but denying its power? I, I can't remember the exact uh, percentage, but you see these quotes, or something ridiculous, but 77% of Americans claim to be Christians. I mean, if 70-plus percent of Americans are really born-again Christians, something's not clicking here, and it's not right. What you're really dealing with is at the end times here, there's a form of godliness. See, I think what happens is a lot of times when we think of the end times, we think of the end times of being a godless society. It will be a godless society with a capital G, but there will be a form of religion. I firmly believe that in the end times. And the Antichrist, we're going to get to this in a little bit, he will use religion. There's always going to be a religious segment having some type of supposed relationship with the Lord, and there's always going to be that mindset. So it's not like there's going to be this godless society. There's always going to be this religious atmosphere even in the end. So one of the signs of the day of the Lord is that there's a falling away. And we talked about it. it's a moral, spiritual decay. I mean, the way I thought about it is that if you've ever been driving in the country and you see one of those barns, it's still standing. But my goodness, it looks like if someone would just go over and blow on it, it would fall over. That's kind of the way I think the end times here, the latter days are. It's like we're this really teetering barn that's just waiting to collapse, morally and spiritually decay. I mean, come on, you guys that work out in the world, you see that moral, spiritual decay. You've probably seen it in your family. You see it in your coworkers. You see it in school. You see it all over the place. The foundation of morality based in godly principles in Christ is decayed, and this is the end times where it's just getting ready to collapse on itself. False teaching is rampant. Uh, moral decay is rampant. God says this is a sign of the end. When you get to this point, he says, keep your eyes open. Well, that's what Second Thessalonians here is saying, is the falling away comes first. After the falling away comes, go ahead and go to the next slide, verse 3 of Second Thessalonians 2, the man of sin is re revealed. This is the rise of the Antichrist. Now, depending on your translation, I try to put up as many as I can. I do New King James. New King James calls a man of sin, son of perdition, or lawless one. Depending on your translation, they may call him lawlessness. It may call him the son of destruction. It may call him wicked. 
Either way, you get the point. This is an individual that is raised up at the end. And as you can look at his, his biography, if you will, here, he's worshipped as God. Note small g there, please, that he's worshipped as God. Look at verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. What we can piece together here by putting all the scriptures together is right now the temple is not built. Um, this is an established fact. They're working on trying to rebuild the temple. This is not some crazy idea. This is an established fact. That they're actually training priesthood right now. They're actually trying to make the clothes properly. If you know the Old Testament, they're trying to get a pure red heifer to have the ashes of the red heifer. They're actually trying to make the stuff just like the temple. This is not anything hidden. This is true. And so they're trying to rebuild the temple. Well, what we can piece together here by the scriptures is that the temple is going to be rebuilt. And then during the uh, tribulation period here and during the day of the Lord, that the Antichrist is going to go into the Holy of Holies and claim to be God and ask to be worshipped. And that's what you're talking about here in verse 4, is this Antichrist is going to claim to be God and say, worship me, worship me as God. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen. Second Thessalonians say that. Next one is he's empowered by Satan. Stay here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. You can kind of jump down and see what's going on right here. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. He's going to be empowered by the enemy and be empowered to do things that they, people will call quote-unquote miracles. Now, if you've ever studied out the book of Exodus, you know this is what the false magicians did, magicians did in the court, uh, court of Pharaoh is they did their little tricks, made themselves look good. Well, Revelation 13 comes out and says, he calls him the beast. You know, the beast is going to be empowered by Satan, and he's going to be, I, I, I don't know how to say it without trying to sound like I'm complimenting him. I believe this guy's going to be very charismatic. I believe this guy's going to be very popular, and I think this guy is going to be very well-liked by the world. He's going to have that type of personality. He's going to be very, very suave, and people are going to be drawn to him. They're going to be attracted to him, and he's going to be empowered by the enemy. And we can know by studying out Revelation 13, it looks like he's going to be wounded. He's going to have this miraculous false resurrection. He's got a sidekick by the name of the false prophet that's going to keep pointing people towards him, almost like a ringleader saying, worship him, worship him. And you can see this all building up. This Antichrist is rising into power here. And what's he going to do? Well, his platform is going to be deceptions and lies. Look at verse 10. And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now, this should not shock us. But what did the enemy do back in the Garden of Eden? He twisted God's word in scriptures and lied to Eve. What did Satan do to Jesus when he, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days? He twisted God's scriptures and lied to Christ. Now, the thing about Satan is, he's got a plan that works. Twist the scriptures and lie. John 8, says that Satan is the father of lies. What do you see with nearly all false teaching out there? There's an element of truth that's been twisted and has become a lie. And that's what happens is if you go look and talk to most people, they put Mormonism or uh, Jehovah Witnesses under the same umbrella as Christianity. Oh, you guys still got the Bible. You're talking about Jesus and heaven and God and stuff. And what happens is truth has been taken and twisted and become a lie. Same thing's going to happen here at the Antichrist. The truth is going to be taken, twisted, and become a lie. And that's going to be his platform is deceptions and lies empowered by Satan. Now, look at that last word there restrained. Now every translation kind of talks about this a little differently, but this is the word that's in my new King James and I like it the best. So that's the one I'm going to use here. Look, if you will, uh, jump back to verse 6. And now you know what is restraining 
that he, meaning the Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. So I, I don't like to use this term because it sounds almost like a, a spiritual term, but there's some type of restraining force that, that is here on this world right now that God is using, almost as you will, a horrible analogy, and forgive me, almost like the plug in the bathtub. <laughs> Once you pull the plug, everything goes down the drain. But once this restraining force is pulled, the world goes down the drain. Now, what is the restraining force? And you know what? You ask 100 people, you ask 100 opinions. You know the only opinion that matters? Mine. That's the only one that matters. I'm kidding. I am totally joking. I will tell you my personal opinion, and if I could, I would put this in big black bold letters, personal opinion, take it or leave it. I believe the restraining force is a picture of the Holy Spirit. I've, that's my personal opinion. I've heard very well-educated men and women have differences of opinion. I respect their opinions, but I believe if you look scripturally, it is a picture of the Holy, uh, Holy Ghost here. Actually, in the New King James, it actually capitalizes the he, you know, to me being also a picture there of the Lord. And what happens is I think we're talking about the rapture here, that once the rapture happens... And the church, the body of Christ, is taken out. And then the Holy Spirit there being the glue that holds the church together because the Holy Spirit is in us once we accept Jesus Christ. That is taken out. Then everything kind of just tumbles, if you will. It's that domino start to happen. And the rapture is the key event that happens with this. Now, I, I've met very, once again, intelligent people that do not believe in what we call the pre-trib rapture of the church. They believe in mid-trib, post-trib. I'm not saying I have all the answers. I, I've studied out pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. The only one that works, I think, with all scriptures is pre-tribulation, that the Lord takes the church out, raptures the church out before this event happens. And please note, what happens is every now and then I run into a Christian that believes it's their God-given goal to find out who the Antichrist is. L look here real quick. Is this not specific enough? Look at verse 7. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's a mystery. Only he who is now restraining will do so until he is taken out of the way. Look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed. When is the lawless one revealed? When is the Antichrist revealed? Once the restraining force is taken out. That, that's very straightforward. And, and people are trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. And I, I kid you not, I've heard just crazy ideas. I, I would just share the craziest one I ever heard. I remember listening to this on the radio. It was after I first got saved. And... It's been 18 years now, so maybe this guy's changed his opinion, but this guy firmly believed that JFK was still alive and that they had him in some basement keeping him on life support, and then when the time was right, they were going to bring him back. That was the miraculous wound that was healed. He was very charismatic, very suave. The people would fall behind him. It's just crazy. It's just absolutely crazy. See, here's the catch to this. The lawless one can't be revealed until the Holy Spirit's taken out. That's what I believe. That's what I believe the Scriptures are saying. Even Satan himself, who's going to pick this person... Um, the enemy doesn't even know when this is going to happen. I've heard people do teachings before that if you look throughout history, it always seems like the enemy has some guy lined up. And, and I'm not saying yay or nay to any of this, but just go back through history. You know, you, you, you had you know, Saddam Hussein there in the 80s and 90s, and then you can jump back to different people. You had Hitler, and you can jump back in time. There's always seems to be, over this one time span, the one bad guy that was just the bad guy. And you always kind of wonder, was that the guy that the enemy was using? I don't know. No one will ever know. And the truth of the matter is when the restraining force is taken out of the way and the church is raptured and the Holy Spirit allows this to happen, it could be, the once again, the nicest, most suave-looking, charismatic man that you've ever seen. People spend a lot of time trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. Is he going to be of Middle Eastern descent? Is he going to be a European out of the revised Roman Empire? Is he going to be a Muslim? Is he going to be this? Is he going to be that? 
the Bible says he's not going to be revealed until verse 8. The lawless one is revealed. And then the Lord will do what? Consume him. This guy that we spend so much time talking about is really only a key player for just a few years. Just a few years. It's almost like you have this little fly that's annoying you. And it's just going around your table, going around your table, and you've got a can of bug spray and you've got a fly swatter. You can just take this thing out anytime you want. Same thing. This Antichrist is a little fly that is just on the blip of the radar screen for just a small time, and God finally says, enough, enough. And then what does the Lord do? Well, he goes ahead and he does this. He judges the world. Now, I don't like to use this phrase a lot because I think this phrase is used in a negative context, in a bad context. This is an actual honest context. I believe during the tribulation, it literally will be almost like a hell on earth of just what is going to be going on. Go back and read the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. This is horrible stuff. It goes back to those passages we read earlier about the day of the Lord. It's a horrible time. Absolutely horrible time. And so what is coming is now there is this judgment that is coming. Look at these words right here that the Lord's going to do. Look at verse 8. The Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And look at verse 12. They all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God says, I'm judging this place. 6,000 years of sin is built up. The scales have been weighted. It's heavy. It's time to be judged. The Lord says, enough is enough. And that's why it's called the great and awesome day of the Lord. Because when this happens, it opens the floodgates to this judgment that comes that is spelled out very clearly here in the book of Revelation and also in Matthew chapter 24. Now, anytime judgment comes up, I don't know about you, as you look through this, you see words like in verse 10, deception, you see, um, look at verse 11. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. You almost sit there and say, well, Lord, this doesn't really sound fair. I mean, it sounds like you're allowing them to be deceived. And this is where it's important. Go to the last slide here. Judgment. Note, they are judged because they chose to reject. NIV actually had the simplest statement of this. In verse 10, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They chose to believe the lie. They chose to be brought under the delusion. It's not that these people were wanting to be saved and saying, oh, please, I don't want to follow the Antichrist. I want to follow Jesus. Sorry, I'm not going to let you. No, that's not what it is. They choose to be brought under the umbrella of this lie and this deception and this delusion. And so since they choose to be brought under that, God says they will be judged for that. And that's exactly what happens here during the end times. Many people will go under this deception and this lie of the Antichrist. But at the same time, too, I'll never forget this. I heard a teaching one time where the pastor said he firmly believes there's going to be so many people that are going to be saved during time, too. And I really do believe that, too, because you're going to see, how do you almost say it? That seven-year tribulation is almost going to be like the Old Testament. I mean, there's going to be angels over the place. There's going to be witnesses raising the dead. I mean, there's all these crazy things that are going to be going on. You're, you're going to see the power of Satan and you're going to see the power of God both right in front of your face. And you're going to have to choose which one do you want to do. Do you want to accept or reject? Now, obviously as believers, I believe we're going to be taken on the rapture. There's usually somebody sitting here saying, well, wait a second, I don't want to choose the wrong side. If you're born again and saved in Christ Jesus, I believe you're going to be taken out in the rapture. There's nothing to be worried about. So the whole point is, we're not going to be here for this. Now somebody may be saying, well, then why are we studying it? We're studying it because look at verse 5 of chapter 2. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? If God thought it was important enough to teach us this in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and Paul thought it was important enough to do a refresher course in 2 Thessalonians, we need to have a working knowledge of this. Because I tell you this, one thing I've learned in my, in my times of talking to people and sharing Christ is a lot of people don't get into the whole love of God thing 
and the whole eternal thing. But as soon as you start talking about antichrist and judgment, your ears perk up a little bit more. And this idea of reality, of this end times may come. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And I really do believe that even those people that are not saved... The Spirit, obviously, the Bible says, is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is speaking to their hearts. And therefore, I think it's important for us to have a working knowledge of these end-time events so that way when the subject comes up, we can say, hey, this is what the Bible says. And we've shared this example with you many times before. Forgive me for the repetition, but when that guy back in May came back out and said the world was going to end, come on, we knew as believers that the world was not going to end, whatever date he picked in May. I don't even remember what it was. We knew it wasn't going to end. Why? Because we know the Scriptures. Since we know the truth, we're not brought in by that false doctrine of demons that we talked about. The truth shows us the truth, and therefore we're not caught up in that stuff. That's why it's important for us to have a working knowledge of this. So, this is the details of the Day of the Lord. Next week, as we get into chapter 3, we get into our reaction to this. How does this spur us on to be the lights and witnesses that God has called us to be? So, does anybody have any final questions, comments here about the details of the Day of the Lord, what we talked about, anything? Yeah, John. Yeah, my, my personal opinion is I, it's called the abomination of desolation. I believe it's in the middle part because if you really look at the um, seal judgments there in the beginning of the book of Revelation, the seal judgments are not good, don't get me wrong, but the trumpet and bowl judgments that happen afterwards are a much, much harsher thing. My personal opinion is that first three and a half years are as a time of building where the Antichrist uh, builds his kingdom, builds his power, which ultimately uh, climaxes in the abomination of desolation. In my personal opinion, I believe it also climaxes into the battle of Gog and Magog there. And so I think he rides that quote-unquote victory into that. That's my personal view. <laughs> yeah. Yep, it does. And, and that's, that's, that is exactly what it is, is that first three and a half is almost him building it. I believe that's where he makes peace with Israel because the Bible says in Ezekiel when the battle of Gog and Magog happens that Jerusalem is a, is a town of unwalled villages. Well, if anybody knows anything about Jerusalem right now, it's not unwalled. It's a military stronghold there. And I agree exactly what you're saying. He builds his little kingdom, if you will, for that first half. And then when he reveals who he is in the temple, the Jews' eyes are opened, and that's where the Jews flee into Petra, that it says. And, and that's where the second half of the tribulation is bold judgments, trumpet judgments, but the Jews are protected in the wilderness for the 42 months. So some good, good stuff there as you put this all together. Yeah, Ryan. Yeah. Yeah, Antiochus Epiphanes is actually... Yeah, and that's what happens there. If you get to the end of Daniel, um, Daniel chapter 11 is, is one of the most tedious chapters in the entire Bible. But it is just this amazing chapter on prophecy. And like you said, there's some dual prophecy, dual fulfillment. And what happens is in the middle of Daniel chapter 11, it just kind of all of a sudden starts switching. Instead of being a prophecy that was fulfilled you know, a few thousand years ago when the Maccabeans revolted between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it actually then switches and starts becoming a prophecy about the Antichrist that's coming thousands of years later. If you want something to chew on tonight, go home and read Daniel chapter 11, but make sure you have a cup of coffee and a notepad because it will, will make your head spin. Uh, it's an amazing chapter. There's packed full of stuff. It's, it's a pretty neat thing. I mean, dual prophecy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I remember correctly, he sacrificed a pig. Isn't that what he did? He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, which, if you know your Old Testament, uh, that's a big deal. But yeah, that's where the Maccabean revolt came in, and um, that all happened in that um, quiet time, if you will, from the end of Malachi before the book of Matthew, that 450 silent years. Um, that's when those type of events happened there. Pretty neat stuff there. Anybody else got anything? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Anybody else got anything here for a close-up? All righty. Next week is it's great to have this knowledge. It's great to have this mindset of what it is. But the last chapter of 2 Thessalonians is now what do you do with this knowledge? How does this apply to us? And how do we use that to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that's what gets into next week. So let's have a word of prayer and then we'll let you guys go. Heavenly Father, we come to you now just thankful to be here tonight. Um, but uh, most thankful about is as we read about this judgment coming in your grace and mercy, Lord, you're taking us home. And what a beautiful thing salvation is, Lord. You just love your children. And thank you for your grace, your love, and mercy. And as, as your word says, you're patient right now, delaying judgment so that more may be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace. And pray that we would take this that we learned and, Lord, use that as just another tool of witnessing, Lord, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with all that we run into. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.